Hello and welcome to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. First and foremost, thank you to the patrons, the supporters of this work. You are really helping carry this work. And if you also are wanting to support this podcast, throw a few bucks my way, you can do that at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. You can start at a dollar a month or more, whatever you're capable of. You'll gain access to these interviews before I release them to the public. There's some other exclusive content there as well. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Jonathan Howard joins me to discuss his timely book, We Want Them Infected, How the Failed Quest for Herd Immunity Led Doctors to Embrace the Anti-Vaccine Movement and Blinded Americans to the Threat of COVID, published by Red Hawk Publications. As much as Jonathan Howard's book is a scathing examination of how various very influential and contrarian doctors misled the U.S. public about the coronavirus pandemic, it is also a historical document. By meticulously, carefully, and thoroughly quoting countless social media posts, statements, essays, op-eds, and interviews from certain highly accredited doctors, Dr. Howard compares their claims to actual reality as the virus began to rip through the population. Over and over again, these outspoken figures made bold and inaccurate claims that the pandemic was just about to end, herd immunity was just around the corner, the worst of the pandemic had already passed, children were unaffected, and so on. Over and over again, these contrarian figures were proven wrong, and yet, despite overwhelming evidence, they still maintain their professional status and accreditation to this day, seemingly unhindered professionally at least, by the widespread consequences of their repeated false assumptions and claims. In this interview, Dr. Howard goes through the timeline of some of the claims made by these individuals, elucidating the origins of various bits of misinformation that persist up to the present. He describes what the Great Barrington Declaration is and its significance, and how the dubious public health recommendations relayed through it made its way into the highest echelons of U.S. political and executive power. We discuss how this contrarian view of public health is informed by far-right libertarian philosophy and how it is animated by a negative conception of liberty. And finally, we conclude by Dr. Howard sharing his views on the value, or lack thereof, of debate with individuals this book highlights and critiques, and how these media-trained, eloquent, and gish-galloping contrarian figures thrive in a media environment that allows their false claims to go largely unchallenged, and what that pretends for our response to present and future public health emergencies. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. I've been really looking forward to this discussion, so thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Patrick. I sure appreciate it. Yeah, it's... Um, I just want to express appreciation for your book, we want them infected. Um, I think it's been getting, I, from what I can tell, a lot more people seem to be reading it or paying attention to it. I, I tend to see a lot more about it as of late. I don't know if that's what you're getting your sense from it, but it feels to me that it is gaining some more attention, I think. Yeah, so it, it, it got a, a very nice write-up in the LA Times, which I think really boosted yes. it. And a couple of other people have reviewed it. 
Uh, I'm just a, a lonely doctor here in New York City, and the publisher, God bless them, I love them, but they're very small. They don't have a marketing division, so it's really relied on on, on word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been it's been spreading. It's not uh, the the number one bestseller, but uh, it's already sold sold many more copies than I anticipated, and I have reinvested the royalties in hiring someone to do an audiobook. So I'm oh, that's great. Yeah, that would be really good. That'd be be interesting to hear that too, because there's a lot of pieces in the book that is, uh, you know, quotes and 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 even like dialogue between some of these figures that you're critiquing. Uh, so anyway, it'd just be interesting to 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 hear that. But I just want to commend you for it too, because I can tell that you put a great deal of labor into it. It is very the amount of detail, attention to detail that you put into it. It, it to me, there's several things that came up for me that I want to mention right off the bat, which is that. It feels like a historical, it is a historical document. I think the same way that we'll look back, or we do look back at the pandemic of 1918, um, the influenza pandemic, and we can look at, you know, what people were saying at the time, what people were writing, what was in the newspapers, um, all the people that were probably giving horrible, horrible advice, medical or otherwise, during that time. Um, We can look at that and we can see, okay, where did it go wrong and where did it go right as far as the response to this public health crisis? Um, I feel like your book does a lot of work for us and that you've <laughs> meticulously gone through not just things that were written like on social media, articles that people have written, you know, the or the you know, the Great Barrington Declaration being one of the documents that you get into pretty heavily, but also transcribing podcast interviews and the the ways in which people spread information in the digital age. Um, so I just, I, again, I just want to acknowledge that it feels like a, a significant piece of work in that I think years from now, people can look back at these three plus years of this pandemic so far and see, you know, what role these individuals played in spreading false or, you know, misinformation around this pandemic. Well, yeah, no, thank you very much for your kind words. I, I, I sure appreciate it. And that really largely was my goal uh, just to show the amazing amount of medical misinformation that has been spread throughout the pandemic by members of my profession, by by, by doctors, uh, very few of whom worked with COVID patients. These were doctors who uh, were everywhere this pandemic except the hospital. They were on TV, they were on Fox News, they were uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, the Atlanta. Atlantic, and they mm-hmm. had many podcasts of their own. And really, I've only scratched the surface of, yeah. of the amount of misinformation that these doctors spread and convinced Americans from day number one that the virus was just going away and it was only dangerous for grandma. Right. Why did you choose these particular individuals? Because you do acknowledge in the book towards the end, especially that you could only write a book <laughs> about this because it was there was so much information to go over. Obviously, I mean, I've read books or I've read a lot about how the Trump administration or the Biden administration in particular dealt with this pandemic or, you know, a variety of other um, angles that one can take as to why the pandemic has um, happened the way that it happened, has happened up to this point. Um, But why did you choose these particular individuals to document? Yes. So I have been interested in the anti-vaccine movement for about a decade uh, when a doctor that I trained with, and this is the only doctor in the book who I've ever met personally, a woman by the name of Dr. Kelly Brogan, morphed into one of the country's most outspoken anti-vaccine doctors. Um, and uh, she was, was a friend of mine. You know, there's nothing, no, no personal animus here. 
But after she left our training together at NYU, she started posting all of this anti-vaccine content on Facebook. And I just became very interested in what, why she was doing this, what, what happened to her uh, mm-hmm. to, to make her reject really medicine's greatest achievement, I think. And I, I learned how to refute uh, all of the anti-vaccine ideas. And I, I became fascinated by anti-vaccine doctors. I compared them to arsonist firefighters, which are a real thing, uh, spreading the very thing that they're supposed to prevent. Mm. And I knew that when the pandemic started, doctors like her were going to be spreading copious amounts of misinformation and disinformation about it. And she didn't surprise me. She doesn't believe that viruses cause illness at all. She's a germ theory denier. She doesn't believe HIV Mm. causes AIDS. She doesn't believe SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID. But doctors like her, they, they did damage this pandemic, don't get me wrong. But I think they saw their media footprint shrink. Mm. Uh, she was not platformed by the Washington Post and the Atlantic and, and, and this sort of thing. Most people who heard her message were not going to take the vaccine already. And she doesn't have the backing of a major medical university. The doctors who I write about um, all had stellar pre-pandemic reputations for being uh evidence-based medicine people. Some of them were famous. Some of them were worldwide, internationally known gurus of evidence-based medicine. That's mm. point number one. Uh, point number two is they were all over the media. They they they, they, they saw their, their media footprint, footprint expand. Uh, they were extremely influential, not just in the discourse like we're doing now, but direct access to politicians, including Trump and Ron DeSantis and Gwen Youngkin. And the third thing is that that I think made them particularly dangerous is they mixed very good kind of obvious advice with horrible advice. The good advice being COVID is dangerous for grandma. We have to protect her and we have to protect vulnerable people with bad advice that COVID is benign and harmless for the vast majority of Americans, that if you get one infection, you'll have permanent immunity and that death is the only bad outcome from COVID and that the best way to get rid of the virus is to spread the virus. Mm. So there's a lot to to get into as far as like what herd immunity is or what the immune system actually is and how it actually <laughs> responds to novel viruses and things like this. But, um, you know, I, I just wanted to address something, which is, you know, speaking to kind of what came up for me as I started reading this is that, I remember just like everyone who was kind of shocked or was trying to deal with the rapid changes that were happening back in 2020, all of a sudden we were asked to stay at home. We were asked to try to avoid catching this new virus, right? Um, But of course, with that came a a lot of divisions in our society and our culture and how we were perceiving what was happening. So I just remember certain things would come up on, on like social media because everyone was extremely online, right? Um, it still is, but uh, still are. But you know, a common a common refrain or a common thing I would hear is that when it was being reported, how many people were dying in hospitals or from you know directly from COVID, um, a common response that people would have online is like, "Do they die from or with COVID?" The difference being from or with. There was this doubt instilled in people's minds that the death certificates that were 
yeah, that were declaring that people had died from this virus didn't in fact die from this virus. There was these stories I would hear that like people would get in a car wreck, they would die from bleeding out from, you know, the trauma of the car accident. And then the doctor would do a PCR test or something and say that they had COVID or they did a PCR test like a day or two before the car wreck and they had COVID then. And then they would say that they died from COVID, not from the car accident, right? So there was a deep misunderstanding of how these things were done, how death certificates are overwhelmingly accurate, typically, or at least include, again, maybe I'll just hand this over to you. I don't want to act like I know what I'm talking about here. But, you know, there were just certain things that would come up over and over again, little talking points, little quips that people would make to instill doubt um, in this narrative around COVID. And what I guess was surprising to me that came up in reading your book was that this wasn't from some fringe anti-vaccine grifter type as much as it was from an actual well-respected doctor and accredited individual. Is that right? Yeah, so I can trace the origin of this myth, and I do think it is a myth, um, back to March 2020. Uh, March 17th, exactly, uh, Dr. John Ioannidis, who is a world-famous epidemiologist, probably the most famous scientist in America outside of Tony Fauci. I mean, he's not exactly a household name, but anyone yeah. who knows anything about evidence-based medicine uh, knows his name. And I, I've favorably quoted him several times in, in, in prior things that I've written. Uh, he seems like a very genuinely nice man, but he is someone who underestimated COVID from day one. And in an article on March 17th, 2020, uh, in Stat News, he wrote something, I'm not, not quoted exactly, but a, a positive SARS-CoV-2 test does not mean that SARS-CoV-2 was responsible for the patient's demise. And that was a main talking point of his throughout the pandemic, uh, especially early on, especially in the first few months. So let mm -hmm. me explain why I don't think that this is true. So first of all, we're not going to know exactly how many people died of COVID. There are cases, like you said, about people dying of, of car crashes, testing positive for COVID, and, and, and people writing that down on the death certificate. And undoubtedly, there are some people who died of other causes and were attributing to death their death to COVID, and we were wrong about that. Uh, the reverse is also true. Do we really think that we accurately captured every single COVID death in this country? Probably not. And how many people are dying of strokes or heart attacks now, these sort of mundane things that may be a consequence of them having COVID three or four times. So, so mm -hmm. there can be errors both ways. But I think if you remember what was going on at that time in March and April and May of 2020, uh, our hospitals were deluged with COVID. It was COVID, COVID and COVID and nothing but COVID. There were giant refrigerated trucks outside of my hospital to store the dead bodies. And this was true throughout New York City's. Other hospitals needed forklifts to move bodies uh, into these trucks. So if these were just, as Dr. Ianidis was suggesting, these were just old people dying of mundane things when you stick a swab in their throat and happen or their nose and happen to find SARS-CoV-2 particles hospital life would have proceeded as normal for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't have needed giant refrigerated trucks. Uh, mm -hmm. We wouldn't have read headlines such as 30 bodies found in New Jersey nursing home, this sort of thing. So mm -hmm. that's number one. Uh, number two is uh, we saw these patients die with our own eyes. 
And this is where firsthand experience really matters. All of these patients came in kind of looking the same. They all had the same chest x-rays. They all had the same lab values. Um, they didn't all die in the same way. Some died right away and some died after months of being uh, intubated. But we know what it looks like when people die of cancer. We know what it looks like when people die of heart attacks. And these people didn't die that way. Mm -hmm. Also, you have to explain the epidemic curve here in New York City. So deaths really started taking off at the end of March. I think they peaked at about April 7th or April 8th when we had about 800 people dying per day here in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then it just plummeted so that by, my dates might not be exact, but by mid-May, and certainly by, by, by June, we had very few people die of COVID. So it was this massive spike and wave yeah. consistent with the virus. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and, and this scene played out throughout the world in mm -hmm. India, Ecuador, Italy, Spain, China. Mm -hmm. So something happened. And, and, and those who say that the, the, the death toll is greatly inflated, I think have a lot of really hard questions to answer, which they can't and they haven't even tried. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, there, there... I'll just add one more thing if I yeah. can which is some governments did adjust their death toll down. So it's not like there's some cover-up. So, so right. government agencies looked at the, the number of deaths that they had and they, 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 they lowered their death toll. So I don't, I don't think that there's much of a cover-up here. Uh, again, there's sources for undercounting, there's sources for overcounting, but all of this was done not to get accurate numbers. This was done to try to convince people the threat was overblown and COVID is no big deal. Yeah, and there was, I mean, just to add to that one point, which is that also you mentioned that there were cases where um, doctors or whoever were hesitant to put COVID as a cause of death because of the stigma that was building around that, right? That people were like, well, we don't want to even touch that. So we'll just say it's from something else. So, you know, there were probably a lot of deaths that were, could be attributed to COVID infection that, or SARS-CoV-2 infection that, um, uh, that wasn't labeled on their death certificate, right? That's true. That didn't happen here in New York City. Uh, what right. you're referring to is a, is a quote from a coroner, I forget where, I think he was in Louisiana, but somewhere, right. somewhere in the South who, Relatives didn't want to admit that their loved one had died of COVID, and they were they refused to put that on the death certificate. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, bolstering the point that that COVID killed these patients is that COVID deaths perfectly tracked excess mortality, which is the overall number of people who are dying above and beyond what you would expect. Mm -hmm. uh, as COVID deaths went up, excess mortality went up. And this was pattern was seen everywhere in, 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 the, in the world, basically. So people who think that COVID deaths have been massively inflated uh, really are positing a worldwide conspiracy involving mm -hmm. almost every single doctor and coroner and uh, on the planet. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of hard sell, I think. Yeah. Well, again, I think that um, the significance of your book is that you're not speaking to people who who are speaking necessarily of those speaking of this this issue and this crisis in conspiracist framings. They're ne they're not saying that these numbers are all fake or inflated necessarily, although they may have made predictions that have been false, proven to be false pretty quickly after they made them over and over again. Nonetheless, they 
they kind of exist in this almost middle space where they're acknowledging the virus is real. They're acknowledging that it's bad for maybe a certain vulnerable population, so on and so forth. So there is credibility there, but then they will dismiss the idea that it's bad for children to get, that it's actually a positive thing for children to get COVID or for anyone else that is not considered, quote, uh, vulnerable, right? But there's a false binary there between being the vulnerable and the non-vulnerable, um, which is to say that how do you decide who is vulnerable and non-vulnerable? And so I think that one of the major flaws in a lot of these people's argument is that, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit here because we got to kind of unpack where this even came from, but there were certain other ideas that started to seep into the culture around you know, how we can maintain sort of pre-pandemic economic activity and open society um, while somehow maintaining some focus protection on people who absolutely need that protection. There's certain ideas that became pervasive. And I think it's like when you're kind of in the middle of the chaos of that moment of the of this time, it's hard to know where things can be traced to, like where does it actually originate? Um, so some of these ideas really seem to have derived from a document called the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and it seems like a lot of these people you're critiquing are in some way or another either tied directly to this document um, or at least at the very least have have ideas that are very similar in the same spirit. Could you talk about what this Great Barrington Declaration is? Yeah, so the Great Barrington Declaration was uh, formally published on October 4th, 2020, and it got its name because it was uh, written in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, the home of a think tank, I think AIR is their name, the American Enterprise Economic mm. Research Forum, some, something like that. Um, it was written by three doctors, epidemiologists, none of whom will work with COVID patients, but were uh, very credentialed. Jay Bhattacharya, who's a, at Stanford, Martin Kuldorf, who was at Harvard at the time, and Sunita Gupta, who uh, is at Oxford. Uh, you can, the listener can pause now and go read the Great Barrington Declaration. It is very short. Uh, it takes about one or two minutes to read. And this document was very influential in our COVID response. It was written under the watchful eye of a man by the name of Jeffrey Tucker, who was kind of like a cartoon villain. He <laughs> is an anarcho-capitalist type who is overtly pro-child labor. In 2016, he wrote an article called Let the Kids Work. Uh, which uh, advised children to drop out of school and work at Chick-fil-A and Walmart. He is overtly pro-child smoking. He feels that teenagers can smoke when they're, you know, smoke when they're young and it's cool and they can enjoy it and they can quit before they uh, have any uh, ill health effects from it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he has ties to racist organizations uh, such as the, the League of the Confederacy, something mm -hmm. along those lines. Mm -hmm. And when the Great Barrington Declaration was written, there were a, a camera crew there, there were journalists. So it was a very publicly, uh, it was a production, it was an affair, it was yeah. a spectacle. Uh, when, when doctors get together to talk shop, there aren't normally cameras and journalists there, there to interview us. Anyways, the Great Barrington Declaration was based as a, on this idea that, yes, you could dichotomize people into vulnerable and not vulnerable, which, you know, to some degree you can. You know, a healthy 10-year-old has a very low risk of COVID, not zero, but but very low, uh, whereas a obese 80-year-old with cancer and heart disease has an extremely high risk. Mm -hmm. And if I describe their vision as benignly as possible... It was that by allowing young, healthy people to contract COVID and build up immunity, 
uh, it would lead to herd immunity. And they felt that this could happen in three to six months. Mm-hmm. And if we sheltered vulnerable people during that time, so if we sort of separated the two worlds of the vulnerable and not vulnerable for three to six months, and we let natural immunity, herd immunity build up in the not vulnerable people, the virus would go away. So this is the idea, again, of spreading the virus by getting, uh, excuse me, of getting rid of the virus by spreading the virus. Hmm. There are many problems to this. Uh, Again, they assumed that one infection led to permanent immunity. They assumed that death was the only bad outcome. And they assumed that these two worlds could be totally separated. So they wanted pure COVID for about 250 million Americans and zero COVID for everyone else. So they claim to be anti-lockdowns, but vulnerable people were essentially told to be prisoners in their own home. And of course, all of this became obsolete because within two months, people started getting vaccinated. So this, again, was published in October 2020. And by December 2020, the world began its vaccination campaign. But they were very influential. They had already met with President Trump in the Oval Office and the next day. They were meeting with the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, Alexander Azar, on October 5th, 2020, and they started echoing all of their talking points about protecting the vulnerable. And their plan to protect the vulnerable, it it really wasn't a plan. It was a list of demands. You know, public health officials should feed older people at home. Public health officials should make hotels available for older people to live in if they can't isolate themselves things like that, that sound very easy to write, or excuse me, they are very easy to write, but it's much easier to write feed older people at home than to actually set up a massive nationwide food home delivery uh, program for homebound seniors for three to six months. Yeah, it seems, and then it seems also like you talk about how they started to gain some sense of influence, that there was no point that these doctors or these individuals part of the Great Barrington Declaration are associated with it, ever went out of their way as part of their mean their, their way to influence sort of the trajectory of, of the public health response to the pandemic, that they ever even actually follow through in any meaningful way on those things you described, on actually doing that kind of focus protection. Is that true? Not that I saw. So half of the Great Barrington Declaration was open up everything, and the other half was this Yes, the, the sort of focus protection idea. A lot of their ideas were already being implemented because they were kind of common sense, like test nursing home staff frequently mm-hmm. um, or wash hands or have older people uh, wear N95 masks or, or, mm-hmm. or try to meet people outside as much as possible, at least for, for vulnerable people. So a lot of them were common sense and a lot of them were very uh, already being done by the time it was written. But even they recognized that their plan was really just sort of an outline. So a year later, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya suggested, he said, we could have used DoorDash to feed vulnerable people at home. And so this idea uh, of tens of millions of 70, 80, and 90-year-olds using DoorDash to to feed themselves at home, it just shows that they didn't put any, any thought into this. And the main ideas behind the Great Barrington Declaration actually originated in March and April 2020. So in that essay of Dr. Johnny Anides that I referenced before, 
he said something along the lines of, again, I'm not going to quote exactly, but school closures may diminish uh, the, the chance of children developing herd immunity. So this idea that one infection meant permanent immunity and, and children could be spared the virus by getting the virus uh, was very popular early on. And all of these doctors vastly underestimated COVID, uh, predicting that it would kill 10,000, then 20, then 30,000, uh, or that Sweden, which didn't lock down, was going to reach herd immunity by May 2020. And rather than say, I underestimated the virus, that's where I think they started spreading some of these conspiracy theories that we talked about that you couldn't trust the death counts. I can't be wrong. Right. Numbers are wrong. Right. Well, can I, I would like to sort of flesh out the idea of what herd immunity is. We hear this all the time. And I think it is based on some ideas that are either just like really outdated or have, um, I don't know. I'm curious, like where some of the origins of these ideas come from, because the idea, like, for instance, let me give you an example. I remember as a kid, my mom had me play with other kids who had chicken pox as a way to get me to be immune, quote, immune to chicken pox. I just assumed that like a lot of people that if you get a certain kind of virus, you'll build this natural immunity and defense against it in the future. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that was even the right decision on her part. I don't think, I don't blame her by any means. I don't blame anyone for this. I just acknowledge that there's a certain maybe concept or conception of how immunity actually works, not on, on, on the individual level and on the population level that is being, um, I guess, recommended or being propagated by certain medical professionals that is based in a, in a worldview or based in maybe certain ideas that are just not true. So especially with a novel virus that has been described as a BSL-3 virus, like when we have uh, biosafety labs, there's like four levels. The fourth level is like the highest, most concerning viruses that require the highest level of protocols to work with. And then right under that is BSL-3. And that's where COVID is. That's where SARS-CoV-2 is. This is like a new virus that we hadn't seen before that was spreading among the global population. And yet these doctors had the confidence or the arrogance or the hubris to make vast claims. And not only do they make it one time and then say, oops, I was wrong, sorry, or they make a few claims and then back off, they did it over and over and over again. And I think what was also so strange is that they weren't new claims. They were they were making the same claims over and over and over again and constantly being proven wrong. A really obvious example is Monica Gandhi, <laughs> who was humiliated by Mehdi Hassan um, on his uh, great, uh, the great interview he did with her. But anyway, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of rambling. There's so many points to get to. I, I just wanted to, to, to yeah, sort of yeah. spill yeah. out a bunch of thoughts at you. But I, <laughs> this concept of herd immunity, could you please like kind of go over that? A well, bit. herd immunity is a very real thing, and we have it, fortunately, for many viruses here in the United States. So herd immunity uh, is, is, is a state where there is no ongoing viral transmission, where the R not, meaning how many new infections each person is going to cause, is below zero. So mm -hmm. what that means is, and just in practical terms, we do have this for measles, for example, uh, when there are, are measles outbreaks, usually what happens is they find clusters of unvaccinated children and several 
dozen or a couple hundred children get sick, uh, but it, it 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 peters out. It doesn't spread out because there's enough immunity in the population. Mm. Herd immunity has never been achieved through natural infection alone, uh, especially not for a virus that doesn't lead to permanent immunity. So some viruses do. So chickenpox and measles, for example, if you become immune once, your odds of getting sick twice are not zero, but close to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your mom, like my mom, made a rational decision to expose us to chickenpox, which is milder uh, in children. Mm-hmm. One infection does lead to immunity. And presumably, you were not born before 1995 when there was a vaccine available for it. So under those three conditions, I think it makes sense to possibly expose children to viruses that are less dangerous for them when there are children than they are adults. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 only meets one of those three. It's less dangerous for for children than it is for adults, but it doesn't lead to permanent immunity. And we do have a vaccine for it. Mm -hmm. The reason that you can't achieve herd immunity without uh, a vaccine is of course newborns. So what would happen in measles in the pre-pan in the pre-vaccine era in the 1950s and 60s is cases would spike one year as it infected all of the newborns. Then cases would plummet the next year as it sort of ran out of kids to infect. Then a new crop of newborns would be infected, uh, and so you'd have mm-hmm. three million infections one year, three hundred thousand the next year, and would go up and down, up and down like mm-hmm. that. So humanity has never achieved, and it's probably impossible to achieve, herd immunity through a virus, through natural infection alone. I was I was thinking of, of um, we talk about, yeah, the, the sort of idea of herd immunity and the idea that we can gain it through, yeah, through mass infection. It's like there have been really deadly viruses that have been, um, <laughs> that people have been infected with for for a very long period of time like i was thinking of smallpox isn't that a virus that infected people for a great i mean we've had outbreaks for hundreds of years potentially thousands of years potentially right and i think most of these viruses have existed as long as medical history can document and i mean how i mean i obviously i don't i don't hear about smallpox any longer there was a mass wasn't there an inoculation campaign global or something something like smallpox is one of two human diseases that has been wiped off the face of the earth mm, right. um uh, it, it's it's uh, entirely due to vaccines and then you know we were very close to wiping out polio as well mm. uh, before the pandemic unfortunately it seems to have gained a little bit of a foothold as well um, we'll, we'll never get rid of COVID. It's way too contagious, and it has an animal reservoir. So COVID is going to be with us for the rest of humanity. I gotta say, just speaking personally, I, I find that it's so devastating because it is such a, a nasty virus. It's so bad. You know, I think there was. I I, I think what was so maybe appealing about like what these doctors you document in your book, what was so appealing to them is that they were providing a false optimism and had continue to. And the reality is not that it's, I'm not saying that there, that things won't change for the better in regards to our, our uh, for the virus. Obviously we have vaccines and I want to acknowledge the, the positive impact that's had, of course, but it is still being, I mean, there's still mass infection occurring pretty 
around the world. And, and, uh, there are tens of millions of people that are experiencing what's called long COVID now. Um, while the vaccines again have, have proven to be efficacious, they also, there are, there are some problems in the sense that it's, it's not inoculating the population against infection. So while I want to acknowledge that the vaccine campaign has been very positive, it hasn't been a panacea as well. And I think that I find what I find so problematic about doctors speaking in simplistic terms is that they aren't necessarily speaking to the reality of the situation. And, and that happens across the spectrum, it seems to be. Yeah, so th there was a lot of false optimism, and you were definitely right about people like Monica Gandhi. Uh, mm -hmm. One chapter of the book is about 20 to 25 pages, starting with Dr. Ioannidis in March 2020, essentially saying that the worst is behind us. And doctors such as Monica Gandhi, Vinay Prasad, Marty McCary, Jay Bhattacharya, Lucy McBride, John Mandrola, spent much of 2020 and certainly a lot of 2021, which was a very optimistic time because the vaccines seemed much more, or they were yeah. much more effective at the time. It's not like the vaccines, the vaccines didn't fail us. The virus changed too quickly anyways. But they, yeah, spent, yeah, yeah. they spent months, every month, uh, they had five quotes saying, the pandemic is behind us, the pandemic is behind us. And in fact, the worst was yet to come. And they mocked anyone who disagreed, calling them prophets of doom and gloom and fear mongers and breathless scare mongering. Then the Delta variant arrived. Don't worry about the Delta variant. Then the Omicron variant arrived. Don't worry about Omicron. So over and over and over again, uh, they falsely reassured Americans and their Twitter feeds were full of people saying, we love your optimism. You know, you give us hope. So they told people what they wanted to hear and they got a, a very big following do, doing that. Um, yeah. And they really overhyped vaccines at that time. At mm -hmm. the start of 2021, they told people vaccines are going to be 100% effective. They're going to end the pandemic. And once you're vaccinated, you can act like COVID is over. And that didn't turn out to be the case, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I want to speak to this because you, you, of course, mentioned the, the large followings that they gained. So, I mean, we can just attribute, you know, how social media works, how Twitter works, and how people who make bold claims that people want to hear can gain a lot of traction. They can get a lot of, um, a lot of attention. But I want to speak to, from what you could gather as to, because these people made false claims over and over and over again, which can be like tracked, like you can see it. You do a great job in the book of showing like, there's this one chapter, I want, was it chapter five or six or seven, I'm trying to remember which chapter it is, where you have the date, the number yeah, yeah. of confirmed cases of deaths of COVID, and what each of these individuals is saying at that exact moment. And when I talk about the repetition of their claims, this is kind of what I mean is that they, you can see these people saying the same exact thing, different variations of the same exact thing as the death toll is racking up. You get up to 500,000 people and they're saying the same things they were at 200,000 or nearing a, a million, right? Um, where, where are these people, like how are they maintaining their credentials? How are they still being taken seriously like where what what are the maybe what's the apparatus or what's giving them their credibility or the ability to still have major influence uh, over the course of the pandemic 
Yeah, so I, I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. You know, I, I, and, and this is what motivated me to write the book. I mean, at, at the beginning, I was unsure that they were spreading misinformation. It took me a while to sort of realize this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I kept waiting for someone else to write the book. I thought, oh, there must be tons of journalists who are seeing the same thing I'm seeing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it, it turned out it's not like I'm a lone maverick. A lot of other people saw this as well, uh, but no one else compiled it into to a book. Um, I, I think they maintain their credentials because, uh, again, they mix good advice with bad advice. They are not saying obviously uh, bizarre things that, that COVID is a hoax, for example, mm-hmm. uh, complete hoax. Uh, I think universities have a tradition of academic freedom, which is important and valuable, but it, it, it didn't prepare us well for times like this. And I want to be very clear that in the book, I am not trying to shut down heterodox voices or people who are thinking differently. And yeah. some people who thought differently during this pandemic were, were heroes. Uh, the, the example that I give is this Hungarian scientist by the name of Caitlin Carrico. I, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, but she's a, she's a scientist at the University of Pennsylvania who was kind of ignored and, and not taken seriously until her work with mRNA led to the mRNA vaccines. Mm. Um, she is not a media presence, quite the opposite. When when she became briefly famous, when she agreed to give a couple interviews, but has since retreated back to where she's happiest in, in, in the lab. So we, we have to be careful not to shut down contrarian different voices. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's where universities are coming from, is that they're, they're, they're scared to do this. I think they're also a little bit wary of the Streisand effect, or maybe I should call this the Obi-Wan Kenobi effect. Uh, where he says to Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. So <laughs> the moment any one of these universities was to take any sort of action uh, a- against any one of these doctors, they'd be on Fox News the next day uh, saying, you know, oh, they're trying to silence and censor me. Well, they, they say that anyway. They, they can, they're, they're very good at being professional victims, which, yes. which helps uh, insulate them from criticism because when you say, uh, oh, by the way, you were wrong about the pandemic ending in April 2021. Oh, you're trying to silence me. Oh, you're trying to censor me. And I don't want to be seen as a censor. That's like the worst thing to be in, in, in medicine. So so they're very good at weaponizing their victimization to, to stave off criticism. And I think there's just, uh, to be honest with you, uh, how do I say this diplomatically, but a lot of leaders in American medicine don't want to rock the boat. So mm-hmm. Monica Ghani, for example, wrote a book, which she's entitled to do, and it's going to be coming out in a few days. Mm-hmm. But a lot of leaders of American medicine praised it. They, they, they yeah. wrote these gushing reviews. I, I don't know if they're unaware of her track record of predicting the end of the pandemic every month uh, or they're indifferent to it. But it's it, it's it's a problem. And it shows that like cops, like, you know, mm-hmm. athletes, I don't know, we, we circle to protect our own. And I'm not saying Monica Gandhi should be punished or slandered or censored, but she doesn't have to be praised. But that's what a lot of leaders of American medicine are doing, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a... I, I think a lot of it, you know, you mentioned Fox News, and and um, I kind of want to talk about this part of it with the Great Barrington Declaration in particular. You mentioned his name is Jeffrey Tucker. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So he's a libertarian. You mentioned he's like anarcho-capitalist type. Um, 
so much of their of these doctors understood i think at a certain point that that they were like they were adopt they, they were kind of speaking to a specific kind of almost political orientation right that that you know we should not have public health in the sense of having widespread like like mask mandates vaccines um mandates or um so-called lockdowns things like this right like any sort of attempt to mitigate the spread of this virus was worse than the virus itself um to me there's yeah there's a great deal of of libertarianism in this idea it's like uh it's it's freedom in the negative it's the it's it's you know we started seeing the earliest protests during the pandemic when people were coming out and getting angry about things was because of what they were prohibited from doing what they decided that they were entitled to so to be required to wear a mask in a store or any public space was seen as an affront to our freedoms as americans um or anything else along those lines right so it's freedom in the negative not freedom in the positive like can I go to a public space without catching a contagious disease that'll potentially kill me or somebody close to me? It seems like that's actually freedom <laughs> in the positive. Um, so I, I think that a lot of times what, what ends up happening is people get rewarded for spreading their sort of false ideas. And we have a whole media ecosystem and a whole political kind of funding apparatus that that rewards that kind of, uh, of thinking. Yeah. Um, whether it's libertarian, I don't really know. I mean, I do hope op- I mean, it is, but uh, yeah. I, I open with the book with an interesting quote from Ayn Rand, who I liked as a teenager. And if I can just read I, yeah. it, it yeah. says, the next question in regard to quarantine is somewhat different because in the state of sense of quarantine, if someone has a contagious disease against which there is no inoculation, then the government will have the right to require a quarantine. What is the principle here? It is to protect those who are not ill, to protect the people who, to prevent the people who are ill from passing on their illness to others. Here, you are dealing with a demonstrable physical damage. Remember that in all issues of protecting someone from physical damage, before a government can properly act, there has to be a scientific objective demonstration of an actual physical danger. If it is demonstrated, then the government can act to protect those who are not yet ill from contracting the disease. In other words, to quarantine the people who are ill is not an interference with their rights. It is merely preventing them from doing physical damage to others. I like that quote. I agree with that. (laughs) In my book, Mm. I do not take positions. Maybe I should. Maybe I'm a little bit of a weakling. But on things like mandates, I really don't even take a position on school closures or lockdowns. other Because those are value statements. And my book is a scientific one. Mm -hmm. Other than to say... In order to make value judgments, we need to have facts. And mm. these doctors spread bogus stats and fake information and false predictions constantly. So whatever one's ethical precepts are, they impaired our ability to make rational decisions about them. So let's say you're someone who says schools never should have been closed. Okay, fine. Um, but how many children would have suffered and died had 70 million contracted COVID at the start of the pandemic, as these doctors suggested? How many teachers would have died? Here in New York City, we had 74 Department of Education employees die within the first six weeks. It's not all clear that they got COVID at school. 30 of them were teachers. A, th- a teacher at my child's school died. That wasn't good for kids. How many children would have brought the virus home to their families and spread it that way? 
So the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration answered those questions by saying children have no risk. Most teachers are young and have no risk and children don't spread the virus. So it doesn't matter if they are exposed at school. They won't spread it to teachers. They won't spread it when they get home. And so, again, maybe you feel schools should ne never should have been closed, but we need to be honest about what would have happened. And actually, we know what would have happened because we saw what did happen, which is schools were closed by overwhelming COVID outbreaks in sick mm -hmm. teachers not just in liberal New York City and San Francisco, but in Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, and the Carolinas and Florida and Georgia. So this happened everywhere. And how did they react to schools being closed by uh, overwhelming outbreaks of the virus? They reacted by covering their eyes, putting their fingers in their ears and covering their mouth. And they never acknowledged that. So they lived in this fantasy land where everything would have been just fine if it wasn't for lockdowns. Right. It's kind of amazing. I still see uh, like opinion pieces or whatever, or, you know, comments being made that like all of the consequences of all the things that we're dealing with now, the psychological issues there, you know, academic performance, you know, decline in academic performance among students or, I mean, pretty much anything. It was because of the lockdowns. Like they, they blame the short period of time when people were asked in some places i don't know I, I don't think there was really a formal lockdown i i you do talk about actual places where lockdowns occurred um and where there was limits on travel like in new zealand you know so there are real places where these things really occurred but i don't know it doesn't seem like there was a true lockdown here in the uh in the united states and there may in a region by region state by state it was all very different yeah, you know, some some things were pretty strict and other places were less so. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't mean to minimize lockdowns. And no, I of course not. Minimize the, the, the harms that they cause. Uh, the same way I'm very quick to point out these doctors were sheltered from the consequences of their words when it comes to spreading COVID because they weren't the ones in the hospital. Uh, I need to point out, even though I had, of course, no real world responsibility for lockdowns, if I favored them or if I was against them, no one was listening to anything that I said. Uh, but I, I do need to point out that I was sheltered from their consequences. I yeah. uh, worked yeah. throughout the pandemic. I was never lonely. Uh, I um, uh, I never missed a paycheck and I was never worried about that. My, my children had homeschooling for a year, so I wasn't completely sheltered from the consequences. But for the most part, I, you know, I'm not some small business owner who is wondering how I'm going to put food on my plate. So I don't want to minimize, we have to be yeah. careful. I don't, I don't think you were, but, you know, to minimize those very real, real concerns. I mean, uh, or my whole social network wasn't just completely disrupted and, and swept out from under my feet. Uh, so so I need to, to, to recognize that. But yeah, these guys blame lockdowns for the war in Ukraine. They, they blame them for everything. And they speak <laughs> about them in very... Kind of histrionic terms that it was the greatest assault on the working class since the Vietnam War and segregation, uh, yeah. the, the, those sort of uh, atrocities. And their complaint about the, the the lockdowns was that they protected the laptop class, which they are, I'm not, uh, and that it exposed vulnerable workers. And there's some truth to that, right? Poultry workers got sick. Uh, corporate lawyers did not. But they seem to think that poultry workers and bus drivers would have been better off had hedge 
hedge fund managers and corporate lawyers been dying next to them. And that's a very odd belief that, mm -hmm. that the working class would have been better off had the laptop class been dying alongside with them, which is, of course, not true. Had the laptop class contracted COVID in mass in the spring of 2020, we would have had bodies in the streets. There would not have been any more room for these patients. And of course, they didn't need the lockdowns to stay home. Corporate lawyers were going to be safe no matter what. Uh, and in the spring of 2020, when morgues were overflowing with bodies and sirens were ringing throughout the streets, uh, every New Yorker heard this. It's not like restaurants and bars and theaters and offices would have been crowded with people living normally, but for lockdowns. People chose to stay home. This happened right. in Sweden, where they initially resisted lockdowns, is, is people stayed home voluntarily. So uh, they, they have this uh, fantasy that everything would have been fine if it wasn't just for politicians. Right. Yeah, you know, I think... Um... And this reminds me that uh, someone that you quoted in your book, someone you spoke to was Beatrice Adler Bolton. You have at least one quote from her. Um, and I've had her on the podcast a couple of times. And uh, of course, she's the co-host of Death Panel. Um, I was listening to an episode where they were describing this laptop class you're describing. I don't know if they call them that in the episode, but they were describing it in the way that these people were viewing and, and experiencing the pandemic as like a sociological event not as much something that they were directly experiencing where they were witnessing the bodies piling up as, as a, you know, frontline doctors were, or, you know, um, people working in factories who had to continue to work through the pandemic who were, you know, getting infected with this virus because they basically had to continue working. Right. Um, these people experienced it viscerally. Um, and yet these people that are complaining about the laptop class are they themselves, part of this class of people who already could do most of their work from home, from their laptop. So it's just kind of this, it reminds me of like, this is a weird comparison. It just reminds me of like conservative, like political pundits who are Ivy league educated. They live in New York city and yet they, they'll, they'll like dress like they're just down home, like um, living in Montana and they have their kind of very like rustic looking set. You know, it's kind of like George Bush living on a ranch in Texas, but he's like a, a millionaire or a billionaire. You know, it's this sort of projection of who you are to the public when in fact you are exactly the people that you are talking about. And it's 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 fascinating to uh, see how these doctors are very critical of, of, how, of the pandemic response. And yet they themselves are very much a part of that profession. It's 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 interesting, and even worse than that, uh, laptop class doctors like Jay Bhattacharya are, are very critical of frontline doctors like myself because we didn't try to spread COVID three years ago. Mm. He feels that doctors who tried to stop the spread of COVID at the start of the pandemic were asking the public to stay safe for our sake. That we were trying to. Mm stop the spread of COVID number one, so that we wouldn't have to work so hard. So he's calling us lazy uh, and to not expose ourselves to risk. So he's calling us wimps. So according to him, someone like myself 
and he actually wrote this directly about me, uh, who volunteered to work on a COVID unit, as did thousands of other people. But I'm a neurologist. <laughs> I'm a psychiatrist. I don't know mm. a lot about treating respiratory and what turned out to be vascular viruses, but they mm. needed everyone. Gynecologists treated men and pediatricians treated women. It was all uh, pediatricians treated seniors. It was an all hands on deck moment. Uh, he, he feels that I was trying to be selfish and, and cowardly because I didn't tell everyone, hey, go out and get COVID now. Um, and, and this is what I was talking about. This is the sort of thing that no one who worked in a hospital would say. There's nothing that could have been done to have lowered my risk of COVID at the time because we had 500 COVID patients here in the hospital, in, which is normally meant to contain 300 patients. So let's say you had put in another extra 1,000 patients, my risk of COVID wouldn't have been any higher. Dr. Mm -hmm. Bhattacharya should know this as a health economist. This is the law of diminishing returns. But extra COVID patients wouldn't have exposed me to any more risk, but it, we wouldn't have been able to care for them. Again, this yeah. would have been bodies dying in the street. So this is a statement of his by a pure ignorance that only a laptop class doctor like himself could make. And he wisely avoided the virus until I think August 2021 after he had been vaccinated. So mm -hmm. he made a very smart decision for himself uh, that he was suggesting other people not make. So you're mentioning, of course, some of the things that even uh, Dr. Bhattacharya uh, said to you or said about you. Um, I want to, There's one final question I have because this is stuff that's just come up lately. I was thinking about how. Um, there have been offers for you and various other people who have been critical of these these folks um, to have a debate. Like, come on this podcast and we'll have a debate. We'll have this person, whatever. This came up recently. I wish I remembered the doctor's name. You shouldn't know their name, but um, when Peter RF... Hotez. Say that again? Peter Hotez. That's right. Thank you. You knew exactly. Because you had uh, RFK Jr. on Joe Rogan's podcast and then uh, uh, Hotez, is that you say his name? Mm -hmm. um, started to critique that. And then, of course, there was all of this really horrible attacks on him online. And and, and I think even some stuff that happened where it's even like physical or, or got like actually in his personal life. So the, the, the point I want to get to, though, is like there's this idea that in order to refute these people's ideas, you need to have a debate. You need to come on a platform. You need to have someone moderated or whatever. And you two just need to talk at each other. I was thinking about how would one debate, I mean, I know he's not a doctor, but like RFK Jr., how would one debate this individual? Would it even serve any good? Could you actually accomplish anything by speaking to a person like him? Um, and this is true for any of these individuals. So I want to hear your opinion about this and like whether it's really uh, makes sense to actually have a an actual debate in the sense of coming on a podcast like this with these people? I don't think so for the most part. So first of all, uh, I don't shy away from debates. Um, I have written about 120 articles for the website Science-Based Medicine. And anyone listening here are, has been long invited uh, to, to write a written uh, rebuttal to anything that I've written. Uh, so, so 
I encourage debate if, if people want to, uh, you're probably not too many of your audiences are going to take me up on this, but, uh, and I extended <laughs> this offer and only one person, a businessman, anti-vaccine businessman by the name of Steve Kirsch took me up on this, but live debates uh, favor the slickest speaker. For example, yeah. I am very familiar with the anti-vaccine movement yeah. uh, and all of their talking points. I I'm sure that I could beat 99% of doctors in a live debate if I was to take the anti-vaccine side, because that's how knowledgeable I, I, I am about it. The moment that a debate is even granted, however, it proposes that both sides are equal and they have something to say. So it's a mistake to even start a debate with someone like RFK Jr. And he is a fire hose of fire hose of lies. And this is why written debates are, are preferable to, to live debates, because it's impossible to fact check him in real time. This is a debate technique called the Gish Gallup. And scientists like Peter Hotez are limited by their refusal to lie. And, and, and someone like RFK Jr. is not. And I'll give you an example about this. When I first encountered the anti-vaccine movement and became interested in it about a decade ago, I came across a list of uh, 200 evidence-based reasons not to vaccinate your children. This was written by Sayer G, who is the founder of the uh, anti-vaccine website Green Med Info, who was mm -hmm. briefly married to Kelly Brogan. Together, they were part of the disinformation dozen who were posting the most anti-vaccine content on Facebook. Anyway, so I started reading these 200 articles, just the titles of them. And some of them were seemed very convincing. One of them was titled, uh, an out, measles outbreak occurred in a highly vaccinated population. Okay, that doesn't sound good. So I go to the actual article. And what it said is that in a highly vaccinated population, if you have clusters of unvaccinated children who are close together, you can still have an outbreak, hmm. even if 95% of the children are vaccinated. If the 5% who are all in the same neighborhood are unvaccinated, that's a setup for an outbreak. So the article was very pro-vaccine, uh, but he twisted the words to mm. make it anti-vaccine. And you can't catch all of that stuff in a live debate. Or if you can, the technique is just to move on to the next thing very quickly. So live debates reward the best speaker and the one who is willing to be the most dishonest, which is why we don't debate what is the best way to send a rover to Mars, uh, or even does Mars exist? You know, NASA scientists, before they did that, they didn't have to engage in a live debate. Um, and live debates are for theater. They are spectacle. They are performative. And this really strikes me as an aspect of the pandemic, is that the people who are pushing for live debates they want sport. They treated it like a game because they're totally sheltered from the consequences of their words. Yeah. They don't have to treat a sick person who decides not to get the vaccine. You know, doctors who work with COVID patients did. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're correct. And I think the written rebuttals make sense because then you can, it's easy. It's easier when I say easier, I guess I don't mean it in the negative. I just mean it's like you can actually get, you can actually refute things that are being written and you can take that time to do that research. Right. And again, uh, you know, uh, oh, oh, sorry, go on. I'll just make one more point about why, sorry to cut you off, but why, why a live debate is not the best idea. Is there something called Brandolini's law, which is the amount of energy it takes to create bullshit 
is an order of magnitude less than the energy it takes to refute bullshit. So mm. as I said to you, uh, one anti-vaccine activist agreed to get into a written debate with me, and he made about 10 misinformation points about why unvaccinated children should get COVID. That was really the, the, the theme of the debate. Mm -hmm. And one of them, he was saying that the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus. And he said that in about three or four sentences, misrepresenting a study. And in order to refute him in writing, in order to go through exactly every study showing why the vaccine is safer than the virus, it took me about five pages to do that. And it just wouldn't be possible to do that during the live debate. Sorry to cut you off. No, you're fine. I just wanted to make one final point here, um, which is that, again, I know you didn't really focus on this individual in your book, but you do mention him, which is RFK Jr., the son of Bobby Kennedy, a very famous Kennedy, obviously, uh, brother of John F. Kennedy. We all know the story of these two men and their assassinations and kind of the legacy of the Kennedys, right? Um, he is one of those disinformation dozen that you mentioned, you know, Kelly Brogan and Sayer G is a part of. Um, he is running for president of the Democratic, I guess, ticket or whatever. I just wanted to... Something that I actually wrote a, a small thing about, which is just that you mentioned the gish galloping. I think these doctors that you critique in your book really did help on some level set the stage for this moment we're in now where someone like RFK Jr. can be taken seriously, even though so many of the claims that he's made about uh, vaccines are, well, I mean, I'm going to say the most fucked up parts of it, frankly, were the parts where he was saying you know, that the vaccine mandates were akin to a Holocaust, which is what became a common thing uh, during these anti-mandate uh, protests, you could call them, spectacles, um, to just really obviously false claims of connecting vaccines to autism. So this individual is doing the podcast circuit right now. I've seen him interviewed by more, I don't know if I want to say mainstream, but certainly, you know, um, political programs and I find this to be a big problem is because I wonder, and I'm not sure if you have any insights into this, but I'm just curious because he is going to gish gallop. He is going to come on these programs and people may push back against him, but to be able to do exactly what you described, which is refute his claims in these little soundbite interviews seems impossible. So it's a bit disturbing to see someone like him, who is very articulate and charismatic, um, make these really ridiculous claims and um, <laughs> and have this kind of political legacy behind it. Like, it just sort of seems like a perfect storm for more more misinformation or, or whatever to, to, to propagate. Yeah, no, it's very disturbing. Uh, and, and the doctors who I write about, what they fundamentally did, what their fundamental goal was, was to undermine trust in the mm. CDC, the FDA, and doctors and pharmaceutical companies and all of these entities have acted unethically at times. I'm not here to defend everything mm -hmm. pharma has done. Please mm -hmm. don't put me in that position. Yeah. But it's just to say everyone is lying to you. And into that void comes the man who's been doing this for 20 years, RFK Jr. And on the one hand, uh, he sounds like someone, if you saw him sitting next to you on the subway here in New York City railing about 
vaccines are a depopulation agenda akin to the Holocaust, you'd probably try to move uh, away from him. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, he says some things that sound reasonable, like, I'm not anti-vaccine, I just want them to be safely tested. And of course, uh, vaccines are studied much more yeah. than any any sort of drug or, or, or medication. Mm -hmm. And he's a very dangerous person. Where he travels, measles follows. So in 2019, there was a measles outbreak in Samoa, where he had uh, the island of Samoa, where he had met with some anti-vaccine advocates. And something like 80 people died, including 50 children, and, and, and measles ravished the, the country. And he's very dangerous to my profession. I'm kind of halfway done with an essay making this point that likening vaccine mandates, and, 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 and he's done this for a while, even before COVID, uh, and he called his belief that vaccines were causing autism, he called that a holocaust. But that, that makes life very dangerous for doctors, because what is the appropriate thing to do with actual Nazis, right? If I suddenly found myself transported to 1940, uh, I'm not a stone cold killer. I'd find it hard to take anyone's life under any circumstances, but I'd like to think I would have it in me uh, to pull a trigger and kill a Nazi. And I've met World War II veterans who have done that, and I admire the hell out of them. Uh, and so what is the appropriate response to Nazis? It's to kill them. And by comparing doctors and vac vaccinators to, to Nazis, he's putting a target on our back. Yes. And there have been violence against doctors before the pandemic and during the pandemic. You mentioned uh, Peter Hotez. So some stalker showed up outside his house and filmed him. Um, mm. Not the worst thing in the world, but that's not comforting. No, you know, you don't want to open your front door to an anti-vaccine loon filming you. Uh, Paul Offit has got, he's a, a vaccine expert, has gotten death threats. Richard Pan, a pro-vaccine pediatrician and legislature in California, uh, had someone push him on the street and throw a cup of menstrual blood at him. Uh, I mean, just horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, and RFK Jr., aided by some of the doctors who I write about, really tacitly encourages that sort of yeah, just again, uh, just noted in your book, just that, you know, during some of the worst parts of the pandemic, as far as the amount of people that were getting sick and dying, was also a time when the most hatred, vitriol, and violence was being directed toward public health officials. And I'm not just talking like, you know, top level CDC people, I just mean like, or, you know, like Fauci or something. I'm talking about like, local county level public health workers and people it, it, it was it was mind-boggling and and uh, deeply disturbing that during these times of crises when there's so much conflicting information spreading that people are resorting to this kind of physical pu very public attacks on people who um are not doing anything wrong you know it, it's it's quite it's quite astounding um in that these individuals you mentioned in your book that you talk about in your book that they in any way contributed even indirectly, to that atmosphere of distrust and vitriolic rhetoric and violence towards these these individuals and towards doctors is just uh, deplorable. It's really deplorable. It is. I mean, the doctors who I write about uh, suggested that doctors who actually treated COVID patients uh, killed patients through premature intubations, which is uh, rubbish that mm -hmm. we got paid more money to put death cert uh, to put COVID on death certificates, uh, this sort of thing, or that we were hiding suppressed miracle cures 
the mm. doctors who I write about didn't do this a, a, as much. They were not pro-ivermectin pushers, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you have a population who has been conditioned to believe that the virus posed no threat to them, uh, but doctors did, both through our use of ventilators, for example, uh, or our non-use of ivermectin, and then your loved one is dying of COVID. Sure, I mean it's not it's not crazy that people are going to react violently uh, when they've been told told all of this stuff. Um, yeah. Fortunately, I work in New York City, and I was spared that. No one threatened to punch me because uh, I didn't give them ivermectin. Uh, I actually saw very, very, very few people who got sick because they refused the vaccine. Uh, all of our patients are all the almost all the ones I saw, a few exceptions. Uh, contract who I saw get very sick and die of COVID got sick in the pre-vaccine era. But throughout the rest of the country, uh, this was the case. It became routine, especially during the Delta wave in the South, uh, for for uh, patients to deny COVID with their last breath and or, or or regret not getting the vaccine. That was a lot of people's last words. I should have gotten the vaccine. And it, 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 it's horrible. And we are less prepared for it, much less prepared for a pandemic now than we were three years ago, because experts have quit. Uh, yeah. And I don't blame them. Right. Well, we don't necessarily need to end on any sort of positive or optimistic note, because it sometimes that's not warranted. But it is certainly worth noting, like you said, they're right, right, then it's just that, it's remarkable that we've gone through this event up to this point and that we are actually less prepared for any potential epidemics or pandemics in the coming years um, if those were to arise. And that's, um, I think that if there's anything lesson that needs to be derived from this is, is that, you know, it's just that, um, <laughs> I don't know, I don't think you're necessarily here to, to provide solutions, but you do diagnose a certain kind of problem. So... I, I think that that is significant and, and really commendable work in and of itself. So I just, I, I don't have any final words per se, but I just really wanted to thank you so much for the time. If you had anything else that you wanted to say, I, I want to promote the book, obviously, and, and encourage people to purchase it. Um, do you have any anything you would like to plug or any, like, where would you direct people to maybe find a copy of We Want Them Infected? Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much for having me and all the kind words. You know, writing is a very lonely process, so it's nice to see it out mm. in the real world and people oh, yeah. reading it and enjoying it and, and, and gaining value from it. Mm -hmm. um, you can get it directly from the publisher at Red Hawk Publishing. Uh, starting August 1st, it will be available on Kindle, and hopefully the Audible book will be done by that point. You can mm. also get it from Amazon as well. Uh, I write three to four articles per month for free on science-based medicine. So I encourage people to, to, to check that out. I have a, a lot of articles uh, continuing to talk about all of the stuff that we've talked about here. I'm not, not done at all. And if I was to end on a positive note, I will sort of say, what can we do about this? And I would just encourage uh, people like yourself and, and listeners Really, not not to remain silent. Um, you know, the, mm. the end of my book is uh, a, a plea to doctors uh, not to silence misinformation, not to censor anyone or threaten anyone's job, but just not to look the other way when mm. we see members of our profession spreading gross information, false stats, 
and polluting uh, the, the information landscape with misinformation. And I encourage uh, everyone here listening too, uh, to, to, to also not look the other way. And it can be hard, if, especially if it's a loved one or a family member, mm-hmm. and that's you have to, to, to fight every fight. And uh, you know, sometimes it, it, it's best just to let sleeping dogs lie. But for the most part, don't, don't, don't look away and, and, and don't, don't censor yourself. That would be my final words. Yeah, and I would just say that's exactly what your book is doing. You know, you're speaking to the issue really directly and comprehensively, and you have receipts, which is <laughs> incredible, the amount of work that you've done to to make this, this document, this book. So, uh, Jonathan, again, thank you so much for the work, and thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you would like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at LastBornPodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page. That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.